Hello, I'm Dr. Luis Ostrowski, Chair of the Guidelines Committee for the Infectious Diseases Society of America. I would like to welcome you to the IDSA's Clinical Guidelines Podcast Series, where we regularly keep you up to date on new guidelines published by the IDSA. Leading this program is Dr. Neil Skolnick, who's a professor of family and community medicine at Temple University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Skolnick. Today, we're going to talk about the new primary care guidelines for the management of persons infected with HIV, a 2013 update by the HIV Medicine Association of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, which was published in the November 2013 edition of Clinical Infectious Diseases. Uh, this is a uh, very important core topic for all of us in primary care. Remember, the United States Preventive Service Task Force recommended in 2005 and reaffirmed this past April that uh, everyone uh, in primary care should be screening for HIV infection in all adolescents and adults ages 15 to 65 years of age. The rationale for this is that uh, 1.2 million people uh, in the United States are living with HIV. There are 50,000 new cases per year, and 20 to 25 percent of those individuals do not know they have uh, HIV infection. The guidelines, which are truly a wonderfully organized set of guidelines to, for uh, care, uh, for primary care physicians, discuss recommendations for both initial and ongoing care of children, adolescents, and adults uh, diagnosed with HIV infection. I'd refer our listeners to the full guidelines uh, available at www.idsociety.org uh, as an important resource as we Screen for patients, we'll be identifying patients and either uh, engaged in primary management or co-management with our infectious disease colleagues. Since we only have about 20 minutes for our podcast today, we'll focus on general HIV recommendations uh, and HIV recommendations for adults. Uh, again, for further information and for information about adolescents and children, look at the full guidelines. Joining us today is one of the members of the HIV Primary Care Guidelines Committee, Dr. Michael Horberg. Dr. Horberg is a member of the committee and immediate past chair of the HIV uh, Management Association. He is executive director of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Research Institute in Rockville, Maryland. Welcome, Dr. Horberg. Well, thank you very much, Neil, for, uh, for that kind introduction. Uh, we at the HIV Medicine Association are very proud of these guidelines and, and look forward to their use by our primary care and, and infectious disease colleagues. Uh, they, they really are incredibly well organized, and what I was impressed in reading them is that it's clear that the members of the committee took a lot of effort not just to uh, share the information that's necessary, but to share it in an organized, useful, and operationalizable format. Let's start with uh, the recommendations around serologic assays for HIV and, and also uh, discussing checking for CD4 counts, HIV RNA, and uh, resistance testing. Dr. Horberg? Well, thank you. Um, first off, it should be noted that these guidelines are for patients who've been diagnosed with HIV and, in fact, uh, are not meant to supplant either uh, the DHHS guidelines on treatment or the IAS 
USA guidelines about treatment or the WHO ones. Um, uh, so the, the issue about serologic tests is that many patients will come into your practice already on treatment and hopefully will have a controlled viral load. For documentation purposes, for purposes of eligibility, for often for ADEP and, and other uh, other uh, programs, you should get an HIV antibody test to have on file. Uh, the the basic word word uh, for for te for uh, initial assessment of your patients is comprehensive. You really want to take a complete history, and we give suggested topics in the guidelines. A complete physical, and again with special attention to certain areas listed in the guidelines, and then a complete uh, a complete testing that should include your CD4 count, viral load if a patient is a new diagnosis, and HIV genotype testing to know when you do start therapy which which antiretroviral therapies are likely not to be most successful for you. And then, of course, testing for other coexisting conditions, including other STDs, uh, the hepatitis, uh, toxoplasmosis, and, of course, tuberculosis. Um, that, that's helpful. How about general blood and urine tests? Are they part of the initial workup? Absolutely. As we now know, many HIV in and of itself can affect the kidneys, the liver, um, and cardiovascular risk. Additionally, these treatments, the treatments for HIV can certainly affect the kidneys, whether it be tenofovir, protease inhibitors affecting blood sugars and, and, and lipids, and all of them being processed through the liver. It's really important that you have baseline levels so that you can then detect with time uh, the important effects of both HIV and the medication. Okay. Um, and so initial workup would involve, of course, confirming uh, HIV antibody, checking CD4 counts, HIV RNA quantitative assay, as well as resistance testing. You, you clarified about uh, blood and urine testing. Um, how about toxoplasma? Does everybody get tested for toxoplasma? You know, we still, I think, in general, do. Um, some people, uh, some people may say that uh, that if you if the initial assessment has a very high CD4, the likelihood of them developing toxoplasma would be lower. But remember that the the view about uh, about risks for opportunistic infections go up significantly as the CD4 count drops below 200. But that's not to say that with a damaged immune system that they couldn't occur at a higher CD4 count. Okay. And then with regard to hepatitis, patients are tested for both A, B, and hepatitis C? Absolutely, absolutely. And if they've not been immunized, uh, if, if it shows lack of immunity to hepatitis A and B, uh, definitely do immunization. Some people advocate uh, waiting till the CD4 counts above 200 uh, if it starts at a very low level to ensure a, a better immunologic response to the vaccines. But uh, but definitely, uh, if at some point they need to be immunized. That's a great point, and that brings up the area of uh, immunization. Can you address what immunizations are generally recommended once uh, someone has been diagnosed with HIV infection? You mentioned uh, immunization against uh, hepatitis B and hepatitis A. What else is on the map? Certainly pneumococcal vaccination, uh, including the new uh, 
the new uh, uh, 13 uh, valent vaccination. Uh, vaccination your annual flu shot, very critical. Uh, some would uh, would uh, immunize uh, so pneumococcal and uh, and uh, the annual flu shot. Okay, and then an area of confusion uh, is often what to do with regard to varicella. Uh, any recommendations uh, with regard to vac uh, varicella vaccine, checking for titers, et cetera? Uh, you don't need to, to, to check for titers if a patient gives you a history of, 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 um, of varicella, vac of varicella uh, infection. That's usually good enough. Uh, other people, uh, if they don't, if they don't have any history, you might want to check antibodies before uh, before giving the vac vaccine. It is generally safe, but you'd want to give it at a higher CD4 count. Uh, and certainly, um, uh, at this time, I don't think most people um, uh, most people um, are necessarily talking about the. Uh, are talking about the uh, um, uh, shingles vaccine at this point. Okay, and that, that's helpful. That that actually anticipated my next question. Um, let's now talk about some of the recommendations for ongoing care. Uh, first, with regard to women's health and specifically cervical cancer screening, uh, one of the things that uh, we've gotten used to in uh, primary care is the recommendations the general recommendations for cervical cancer screening actually have lengthened the time for many women from uh, annual pap smears to if someone has no history of uh, dysplasia and no HPV to every three-year pap smears. What are the current recommendations for patients who have HIV infection? Well, HIV is, in fact, the exception to that rule. You definitely want to get a pap smear at time of diagnosis. And this should be repeated at six months and annually thereafter if if the results are normal. Of course, if there's any evidence of ascus or or uh, dysplasia, those patients need to undergo colposcopy and directed biopsy. You know, and further treatment as the results would would indicate. So that that's helpful. So it really is a different routine uh, amount of screening with diagnosis six months and then annually, of course, then treating as as needed. Um, and then how about uh, screening for uh, anal HPV? Is that uh, of any concern, and is that on the map for selected individuals? Well, this this in fact uh, is is still an area uh, I wouldn't say of controversy, but of unclear evidence. Uh, there are many people who um, who believe that um, uh, HPV-infected men having sex with men and women certainly are at increased risk for anal dysplasia and cancer. Uh, many uh, favor the anal pap, uh, at least to have one at, um, at baseline, especially if there's risk, and then based on those results determine what a follow-up is. Many clinics now, though, favor, frankly, high-resolution anoscopy. And uh, if you know of someone who is a tra who is trained in high-resolution anoscopy, that in fact may in fact be a a, a better a, a better option for for your patient. Okay, that's helpful. 
Um, let's move to ongoing monitoring uh, for patients who have HIV infection. Uh, how often should patients have viral load monitored and any other things that need regular monitoring? Well, since the uh, goal of treatment, and, and we basically believe uh, treatment as prevention and, and starting your patients earlier is also better for them, so no longer really less than, than 500. Most patients, if they're willing to be adherent, should be on treatment. Uh, the viral, as the viral load is the main follower of this, you should be checking your viral loads every three to four months initially. Even more frequently, if, you're, if, they're, if they're new to a, a new to a regimen, and then, <coughs> excuse me, once a patient becomes stable after two or three years and the viral load is continually suppressed, meaning good adherence, um, you could certainly then um, lengthen that period to probably every six months, although I wouldn't go beyond that. For CD4 counts, um, you'd usually they follow the viral load, but if you do have a patient who's been stable for a long time, their viral load is suppressed, and in fact, they've had a, an adequate CD4 response, you certainly could increase your CD4 monitoring to every six to 12 months. I know for many of us, uh, CD4 and viral load are, were almost a matched pair. Um, in mm -hmm. fact, many of our labs would go ahead and order one, would order the other if we neglected to order one of them, uh, working on our behalf. So I think that that is a real change in thinking. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. It really is an algorithm of follow-up that is very similar to the chronic disease model many of us are used to with taking care of patients with diabetes, where uh, uh, labs are monitored every three months. And for people who are particularly stable, that length of time can be uh, that 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 can be lengthened. Now, in addition to monitoring viral load and CD4 counts. What are some of the metabolic consequences that uh, physicians ought to be aware of that are associated both with HIV and with antiviral therapy? Well, as we referred to earlier, uh, many, it depends sometimes on the treatment and, on, and, of course, on the HIV itself. Certainly, we worry, as many patients use tenofovir, on long-term kidney effects, so checking a creatinine really uh, also checking for protein in the urine and your phosphate levels. If the patient's on a protease inhibitor, you um, likely are going to be worrying about uh, lipid levels as well as blood sugars. Uh, we do worry about the liver, as many of these medications are processed through the liver. Uh, and, of course, in someone who's co-infected with hepatitis B or chronic hepatitis B, you'd worry also very much about liver function additionally. That's a great point and, and very important. Um, and finally, any uh, hints about a help, how to help patients adhere uh, to, to uh, their treatment regimens? There's a few. One, bring it up at every visit. Uh, make sure that it's on your radar level. Uh, find out if the patients are having uh, any adverse effects of the medicines that may not rise to the level of a laboratory value or, or such a level that they're, they're presenting uh, to urgent care or the emergency room about it. But, you know, low-grade loose stools can, for example, be very discomforting to a patient. Um, talk to them about what time of day they're taking their medicines and make sure the medications have really fit into their schedule. Additionally, adherence may, in fact, be more than just the job of the doctor. Uh, 
make sure uh, the rest of, of your healthcare team is also always asking about adherence, helping your patients navigate this, and make sure they're picking up their, re their refill medications well in advance so that they don't go through any gap periods. That's, that's helpful. So let me recap. This is really a wonderful overview. And I think for uh, an illness which often uh, can seem intimidating to many primary care physicians, this set of guidelines lays out uh, a really nice organized approach that can uh, uh, be very helpful in our taking care of patients. So you discussed uh, initial management uh, occurring with di after diagnosis, being following and checking an HIV titer, a CD4 count, checking for uh, resistance testing, also uh, looking for coexisting infections, tuberculosis, toxoplasma, hepatitis and other STDs. And then, uh, Dr. Horberg, you discussed uh, vaccination, which is clearly important, vaccination against pneumococcal infection, influenza, consideration for varicella vaccine, hep A and hep B. Uh, then we talked about ongoing management, uh, following HIV viral loads and CD4 counts every three months and perhaps lengthening that uh, following period for patients who are particularly stable and adhering to their medications. And we also then discussed uh, ongoing monitoring of uh, associated uh, things that occur with both HIV and treatment, kidney monitoring lipid and lipid monitoring. And then uh, finally, uh, you share with us some hints about uh, facilitating adherence. Dr. Horberg, thank you so much for joining us and uh, helping everyone with this information. It was my pleasure, and, and, and thank your, your, uh, your listeners for continuing to help uh, our HIV-infected uh, patients with uh, great care. Well, for the IDSA, I'm Dr. Neil Skolnick, and thanks for listening.